the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the brave march through the gathering darkness toward Christmas cheer continueth. Surrey down to a stone-cold picnic among the stars. Surrey. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And we have an interview with Michael Z. Williamson this time discussing his latest addition to the Freehold series. The book's called Angel Eyes. This one is in the main Freehold sequence and occurs at the same time as the book that started it all, Freehold. But this is from the point of view of a young woman who gets assigned to a special forces unit doing uh, behind-the-lines work, uh, which is actually out in space. It's a fun book, and Mike will tell us all about it. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Now, here's the news. We have new mass-market paperbacks out in December. These include 1635, A Parcel of Rogues, by Eric Flint and Andrew Dennis. It's an entry in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire alternate history series, of course. This is a Ring of Fire book set in England featuring Oliver Cromwell. Our uptimers have teamed up with Cromwell as he flees King Charles, who is after his head. The new chief minister, Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, brings over from Ireland a notorious crew of cutthroats, led by the man called Finnegan, to track down and capture him and cut down all who aid him. Things seem bleak until uptimer Julie Sims brings out her rifle. Now it's the turn of Scott partisans and English lords and Irish toughs to learn the lesson already learned on the continent. A safe distance is not what you think it is. Not after the American Angel of Death spreads her wings. Ooh, the American Angel of Death. What else is out? Also out in December is debut solo novel from Mike Coopery, the co-author with Larry Correa of the Dead Six series. This one is pure science fiction, however. When privateer captain Catherine Blackwood is enlisted to rescue her brother from a treacherous warlord, she finds herself on her most dangerous mission yet. It's been years since Blackwood left the stodgy, repressive colony world of Avalon. Now the captain of the privateer vessel Andromeda, she is the master of her own destiny. But Catherine's brother, the heir to the Blackwood aristocracy, has gone off in search of treasure on the failed, chaotic world of Zanzibar. Catherine takes the rescue job, but it won't be easy. If she is to save her brother, Blackwood must face down danger at every turn and uncover a mystery four million years in the making. 1635, A Parcel of Rogues by Eric Flint and Andrew Dennis and Her Brother's Keeper by Mike Coopery are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Michael Z. Williamson to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Michael Z. Williamson is retired military. He's a 25-year veteran of the U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force. He's an expert purveyor of all things lethal and cool, like knives and guns. But the salient point today is that he is the author of 10 novels and a short story collection from Bain Plus, editor of an upcoming anthology, which we may touch on. Mike's first Bain novel was Freehold, considered by many to be a libertarian classic of fiction. His solo novel set in the universe of Freehold, either in that book's future or past, actually I guess it's, yeah, it is the past, include Contact with Chaos, The Weapon, Rogue, Better to Beg Forgiveness, Do Unto Others, and When Diplomacy Fails. He's the author of very excellent time travel novel, A Long Time Until Now, and its upcoming sequel. Mike is also the author of the short story and nonfiction collection, Tour of Duty, and he collaborated with John Ringo on the Pusseline War novel, Hero. And I do want to mention that upcoming in the Freehold universe is that short story anthology called Forged in Blood, which Mike is editing and providing a couple of stories for as well. And now out at booksellers everywhere is Freehold Universe novel Angel Eyes. Mike, Angel Eyes is set in what you might call the Freehold series main sequence, perhaps. Can you explain the two threads of storytelling that you've created in this universe? Yes, there's um, 
basically separation revolution war between the freehold and earth and then um a little bit past that is contact with chaos and then halfway between now and that time frame uh, is the ripple creek stories uh of the uh the mercenaries better beg forgiveness, do unto others when diplomacy fails. So what would be the timeline of the novels then? I've, I've got that a little wrong then. It's thematically the uh, the Ripple Creek books go together, but they are not necessarily I, at a different time period, right? No, they're halfway between now and the Freehold timeline, main timeline, but they're in the same universe. Oh, I see. So they are in the past of the... And I've written a, a short story in another collection... That, um, another anthology that will hopefully eventually get uh, compiled somewhere that's earlier than that, uh, nearer future. Um, when you get up to the time frame, uh, Freehold, The Weapon, and Angel Eyes are contemporaneous. They're different points of view of the same time frame. Aha. Uh-huh. Overlap. Uh, what is going on in this time frame? Grayan and Earth are, are just never going to get along. And it seems like conditions have come to a head. Right. It starts off violent and then um, further forward in the timeline, it's more uh, political sniping and uh, and such. You know, it, it doesn't get violent again in the reasonable future between them. <clears throat> Nobody wants to go through a war like that more than once. Uh, loosely, you know, it wasn't based on, but loosely similar to uh, the U.S. and uh, Britain. You know, once they decided things were separate, there was some uh, awkwardness for a while. Eventually, it went away. Well, so the Earth is controlled by the UN in in this time frame, and Grayan is uh, is a libertarian planet. It basically, I mean, it has something like a government, right? I mean, it's not pure. guys are i mean basically there there are good guys in your books and earth is uh the un is just a weaselly force in this in this future it's an overweening bureaucracy perhaps yes and a lot of the a lot of the books are about that how how do you have an armed forces in a more libertarian society as well right i mean that's that's kind of what things like uh the weapon are about uh, that's i mean that's that's a secondary issue but they, they do have a a tax base uh, it's just, you know, not a huge tax base. Um, you know, the big issue is why do you have a military in uh, a time frame like this? Uh, because with the distance involved, it's hard to prosecute a war in a, in a different star system. There's logistical issues. There's uh, communication lag. You know, there's bunches of issues that make it difficult to do so. And, and most of that was addressed in, in Freehold. They had, uh, you know, military. Uh, the UN had a military for the purpose of controlling things, and there hadn't been a lot of technological development, which is why they're not as high tech as some other writers have posited for the same time frame, because they never needed to develop uh, that tremendously. And then uh, the Freehold and several other colonies or independent systems have their own militaries, uh, largely to enforce. Uh, shipping and for domestic pacification, <clears throat> rather than with any intent of actually engaging in large-scale conflict. But Earth has Earth has attacked. Yes, and they uh, in Freehold has covered that they they escalate. It starts off with a couple of small little probing attacks, <clears throat> trying to intimidate, and then moves into a large-scale invasion with some uh, mass weapons. What's the UN's justification for doing this? Well, you, you talk about, you're, you're telling your citizens about how they should be happy with what they've got and how great society is, and then here's somebody else over here who, you know, who's sipping cocktails and sitting on their porch and not having to deal with all the bureaucracy, and 
story in Angel Eyes is the fact that you know it, it's much easier to engage in commerce with a lesser bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which leads to more growth, more development, more transportation, more transshipment. You know, you just, the company can take the easiest route by default, and so are the shippers. This is sort of the niche that um, Angelica Kaneshiro, your main character, has. has a, it's a character-driven novel. It's a first-person novel. Um, there's plenty of action, of course, uh, because it's a Mike Williamson novel. The The main character is Angelica, or Angie uh, Kaneshiro, who has quite the wandering life before the war. Uh, it has to do with this, mm-hmm. this commerce, right? Tell us um, about her background, if you if you will. So she's a peacetime veteran of the Imperial Forces as a medic. Um, she'd grown up with a family that did a lot of groundside traveling, and... Uh, when she got into space, she decided she liked it, so she started working contract crew on uh, tramp freighters. And, uh, you know, she, she plans ahead. She's got some assets here and there, but she's not interested in settling down anywhere. You know, she likes looking at uh, different parts of other people and different parts of different cultures. And, uh, you know, as long as she's got a, some money in her pockets and lodging she's happy who why is she um uh where are her parents where where'd she grow up how did the she get into this situation their ground side on grania it's just you know when she once she got out of the space uh, professionally the first in the military and then stayed and afterwards that really wasn't she, she she preferred space to the ground, just like some people prefer different countries or the mountains. Or yeah, she likes it, um, and she likes the way of life, which is well. There ain't no way to pull it mild, mildly. Um, Angel Eyes has a good deal of sex in it, and Angie engages in a, in a lot of that. She's very free with her sex life. Um, in some ways, she treats it. It seems to me like a personal exchange of contractually, a contractually based. Uh, she's not a prostitute, but. Um, well, not exactly, but, uh, just tell us more about Angie's attitude toward the sort of relationship she develops in the books, in the book. The, the self, um, because, you know, people are at least, on uh, at least publicly much freer with sex than they used to be, uh, with better medicine, better birth control, things like that. And I, you know, I expect that trend to continue in a lot of places. And once you get out into space, uh, you've got much better control uh, of um, quarantine for stations and that. Obviously, stuff does slip through, but it's much easier to bottleneck stuff. So there's no reason not to be, uh, you know, socially free if it's if it's convenient and if it suits you. And then you know, there's different cultural. The, the, uh, the spacers are a completely different culture to ground dwellers. Uh, and then it, uh, she points out there's different subcultures. There's the stationers. There's the ship crew. There's the people who live in the habitats, either on uh, uninhabitable planets, otherwise, or in space. You know, each of them is a microcosm to itself, and has general things that apply to it that wouldn't apply to living on a planet. You know, no weather, for example. Or at least not. There's small localized fluctuations to give it a feel, a natural feel to people, but they they don't get storms, they don't get earthquakes. But they might get blowouts and, you know, oxygen leaks. Angie um, has a lot in common with your your main character in Freehold. What's her name again? Um... Kendra. Kendra, in that, well, in that, both are these sort of um, clever, not incredible, not insanely brilliant, but really clever and and um, and good-hearted, but at the same time, sort of disaffected uh, female characters. Uh, I don't know if you'd see it that way, but it just you just do that kind of character very well. I think Kendra's the smarter of the two, but Angie's got more uh, street smarts. Yeah, or in this case, well, space smart. Definitely got street smarts. The war starts. Angie's first. Angie signs up on the Churchill, this um, uh, warship, to aid the the war effort. What was her job there? Well, it starts off. She notices the war is developing, and then she notices that her, 
know, her life is being affected by it, even though she's nowhere near the war zone, just from the economic fallout and side effects. Um, and then she realizes it's bigger than just a fight between two systems. It's you know, a, a fight for um, economic and political control of all these colonies and systems that have been growing out from Earth. Uh, the the, um, the UN is unhappy that it has no control over these upstarts, basically, and is trying to bring everything back into the fold. <clears throat> and uh, the invasion uh, of the freehold is the larger, more visible aspect, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. Some of these stations um, are, are nations in themselves, very small ones, right? Right. Yeah, comparatively, yes. Uh, so she finds a... She, basically sneaks through because of uh, customs and uh, neutrality issues to find a warship heading home and uh, gets aboard that. And she's, uh, they're reluctant, they're, they're, they're massively overfilled because they've been picking up other vets and other uh, service people here and there. But uh, so she's triple billed as uh, a medic, as a cook, and as a social companion. So, um, and she starts heading... Uh back toward uh, Gray, and she realizes that she, there's something that she knows that she might be able to, uh, that might aid the, uh, the effort more than, than these, you know, skills, especially the social companion skill. Um, what does she propose to uh, the intel officer? She goes to see an intel officer. I think his name is Garwile or her name. Yes, right. Yeah, she's, uh, then she sneaks off the ship she snuck on, <laughs> and, uh, goes to make the case that she's familiar with uh, a lot of the stations, a lot of their conduits. Um, she understands the, uh, the workings of uh, transshipment and cargo, and that she has seen quite a bit of the, not necessarily clandestine, but less visible movements uh, the UN forces have been making, and offers to provide the information to them, and it's pointed out that doing that secondhand is really not feasible. You, know, you can't wait hours or days for a, res for a response to your query on where to move or what to do. So they decide to put her in a contractor position to make her deniable, which is always a fun thing to hear in the military, and uh, send her along with a, uh, a clandestine unit. So yeah, and then the the real fun begins. Andis, Angie is um, given this assignment, and uh, she is assigned to um, a special forces team, like you describe in in uh, the weapon. Uh, the mm -hmm. it's the Blazers, right? Yeah, these are the uh, the Black Ops contingent specifically, um, who, who are closer to CIA operatives or um, you know Delta Force. Yeah, what to, uh, you just in the weapon? It's just like this. You really go into the a, a massive description of the training. Um, could you just? I mean, it seems like even more than buds. It's like buds times ten or something. I don't know. Um, the irony is, I've, I've got fans in the special ops community and Intel, and I've had several SEALs say to me, "So you dialed down the training to avoid scaring the civilians, didn't you?" <laughs> And I've seen that the places when the uh, G.I. Jane movie came out, the civilian reviews talked about the great plot of the ludicrously brutal training, and uh, the military papers reviews were that the plot was stupid, but at least the training was portrayed realistically. Uh, you know, military training can be a lot tougher than people imagine it is. Well, it's pretty super tough, and also I don't think that they train for uh, for uh, operating in vacuum. Even, even in the seals, maybe they do. I don't know. So she's with a super competent, uh, the super competent group. Um, they they go on a ship that is it's kind of a surveillance ship, I guess. It's um, Peeper, Fiefer. How do you how do you say the name for it? It's Belgian French. Yeah. Six sexual combatives, and uh, three of them are technical support who can do just about anything with whatever tools are available. You know, they can fabricate weapons, they can fabricate ID, <clears throat> they can uh, hack systems. 
and uh, so they're they're up they're they're upfront support, although they're not supposed to be directly combatants, but they frequently wind up being so as well. What are what are they doing? What are some of the the what are some of the tasks that they're given? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're they're running a legitimate cargo ship. They're they're, they're financing their movements and making their movements as a legitimate cargo ship and delivering uh, uh, goods between systems. Uh, while they're doing that, um, they're conducting espionage of uh, UN ships, of their movements, of uh, any emplacements or um, um, positions they have. Um, they start off low-scale. They're having to make sure they, that, you know, She's a legitimate asset. They're asking her to show them some of these uh, access conduits and uh, you know abandoned areas and forgotten parts of habitats that have been built over multiple times, <clears throat> and planting occasional bombs uh, to take out command and control elements here and there, uh, create general disorder, and then they they build up more and more as time goes on as they to work better and get a better feel for what they're able to do. Who are um, some of these characters? Um, and that was, that was actually a, a tough bit to write because they deliberately don't give her a lot of information about themselves. And, and she doesn't know. She's more of an observer character to start with. She winds up being more engaged as time goes on. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, it's a... It's a, it's a Six-person elements. There's a crack navigator, a unit commander, uh, an engineer. Um, the technical specialists are acting as ship maintenance, and you know they have ID that, as far as anyone's concerned, is legit. She doesn't even know their real names until the uh, story ends. Yeah, she never knows their real names until the the very end. Her role evolves, and that's that. I mean, that's really what the story is about, how Angie sort of finds a family with these people. Uh, it's not what it's about necessarily, you know, but that, that's one of the, uh, one of the threads. Um, how does that role evolve? What does she become to them? Well, to, you know, to start with, she's a, uh, uh, an asset who may have some useful intel. <clears throat> and then as it progresses, she's actually uh, uh, more of an advisory role on where to go while they pick their missions. And then uh, eventually um, she is effectively part of the team. They assume that if uh, they give her an order or ask her something, that she will be forthcoming, that if she says something, they should take it immediately seriously. You know, what do we do in this case? You're the expert. Advise us. She's very good at, I mean, she's very scrappy, um, but she's, she's nowhere good as they are at, at personal combat, but she does get better, right? Yes, yeah, they make a point of uh, making sure she's trained up as, as well as they can under those circumstances. And, you know, she is a veteran with, uh, with training, and, and she's got plenty of real-world experience working aboard ship and station. And, you know, towards the end, she's uh, engaging in combat as much as they are because you know, the, the enemy doesn't really care what your status is. All they care is that you're a hostile. She's very good at... at, at showing them around and letting them uh, letting them secretly get to places. Um, but uh, she is at one point captured, and this sort of is a, is a pivotal moment in the book where um, what, what does she go through and, and what, what do they do about this? From her point of view, it's, it's terrifying because there's a legitimate warrant for her as a, uh, uh, an enemy threat by the U.N., and she's dragged off the ship. And to maintain cover, they act completely surprised, act as if uh, they had no clue whatsoever, and let her get taken away. <clears throat> and as far as she's concerned, she's been completely abandoned and, you know, denied. You know, there's no reason for them to uh, mention her or do anything because, well, she was obviously, you know, this uh, horrible plant who was affecting their ship, and she assumes they will just continue as best they can without her or using other resources. And, uh, you know, she's drugged and tortured for information, which she really doesn't have much, and does her best to string it out just for the purpose of letting them get away. And, uh, you know, uh, 
couple of days later, there's an explosion, the door's blowing off hinges, and they've come back to get her. Uh, one, because she's a useful asset, and two, because she's part of their element, and they're not leaving her behind. Yeah. That's a really, it's a great moment in the book. Um, so what are, what are some of the tech, and what are the weapons they are using? Uh, how do the ships work? Most of the basic weapons are remarkably boring. Um, when, when you get to bullet throwers, we've come pretty close to a very mature technology. There's a limit to how fast you can push a projectile in an atmosphere. Um, even if you do it with an electromagnetic rail, <clears throat> atmospheric friction shows, slows bullets down very quickly. Uh, energy weapons have huge energy signatures <clears throat> and require lots of power. So, you know, the, the they exist, they're used, but they do have their limits, um, and you know, not really relevant to the fighting they're doing, so there's quite a bit of uh, emplaced explosives. Um, they do want, when you get a, a ship at a substantial percentage of the speed of light, you have dinosaur killer levels of kinetic energy. And you know, it's discussed that planetary defenses are set up to avoid accidents like that. You know, ship hauling millions of tons of cargo hits a planet at a few percent of sea, and you've you basically destroyed the biosphere. <clears throat> but uh, the habitat, habit, inhabited planets are set up to avoid that. The stations, much less so, because no one's supposed to be moving that fast anywhere nearby, nor really has a way to. <clears throat> and it's just not believe that they would, would conduct a direct attack like that, just because of the, the, the sheer cost involved. But it eventually winds up there tossing chunks of mass around and attacking ships and stations. Um, there's one where they're being pursued and they use a gravity wall maneuver along with some uh, munitions to cripple the pursuit. Uh, any, anything's a weapon if it's moving fast enough. Yeah. Well, one thing that um, they're shooting stuff, but um, it, since you're writing it, it's it's pretty cool stuff, <laughs> and um, it, the action is is always well described. Um, let's talk a bit about the upcoming collection, Forged in Blood. Uh, it's coming out next oh. August. Tell us tell us about that. I know something about it since. To do that since about 2006. I had the idea, and I knew I needed uh, more visibility as an author before I could put it together. Um, but it follows a sequence of events and characters uh, from ancient Japan all the way through to 500 years or so past when Freehold is. And they're all connected uh, in the timeline uh, indirectly. And as uh, um, I am very pleased with how it's turning out, you've written a story for it. Um, Larry Korea has written uh, Medieval Japan. Um, Tom Crapman has done one set in uh, Iraq. Uh, and his, his might be the most simultaneously humorous and tragic in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he does some great writing. Um, writers I've known in other genres who are, you know, possibly less known to Bane readers, but might be. Um, uh, Sergeant First Class retired John F. Holmes, who did the PowerPoint Ranger comic strip. Um, Rob Reed, who's largely a firearms reviewer, but does do some fiction. Uh, Peter Grant, who's a former South African soldier, priest, and computer programmer, um, who writes independently. Uh, Then your story is set during... uh, the one tally, which is mentioned in the weapon, or discussed in the weapon quite a quite a bit, and fits in very well. <clears throat> and uh, Mike Massa, who has been writing with John Ringo and done some short stories, former SEAL officer, uh, very good story set during the Russo-Japanese War, which was actually possibly the first modern war as far as uh, you know, repeating rifles, modern artillery reach loading, um, early uh, radio, things like that. 
And you know, that plus uh, John Holmes' story, Southern Guadalcanal, are a very dark, grim, gripping section of the book. Uh, Casey Azell did uh, the the end of the timeline in the future, uh, battling uh, an alien force. And then I've got uh, an excerpt from Freehold in there, plus a post a new post Freehold short story. The we should probably say what the basic conceit of it is, which I'm not sure it came across uh, completely. Which is uh, that this is Kendra's sword. Um, there's a ceremonial sword that uh, that you that you have if you're in the armed forces on Grand, right, or something like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mul- uh, multiple people have had this sword or parts of it over time. And most of them have you know, no idea, well, other than a few years back, none of them have any idea of its history, <clears throat> you know, where the pieces or how, how things got where they were. It's a really cool idea. It's in, I described it to the, uh, I was pitching it last week to the uh, Simon Schuster sales force. I said, it's the red violin except done Bane style. You know? Yeah, okay. I, I actually hadn't thought of it that way, but yes. Mm-hmm. That seemed to, to get, like that but uh, it it was really fun to write that story, and I just uh, it it took a hell of a lot of diving into your world to try to get it right, which was um, simultaneously terrifying and um, and incredibly fun to do for me. So thanks for letting me be part of Forged in Blood. Yeah, it's uh, I, I I like your story a lot. Uh, I I wouldn't say there's any of them that are. Are weak. They they all have their different strengths, but uh, it's it's a phenomenal amount of uh, talent and effort went into it. Yeah, it's gonna be a hell of a hell of an anthology. Can't wait for that. What else could we say about Angel Eyes? Uh... Yeah, so, you know, she she starts off as an observer character. It's uh, David Drake's Rolling Hot actually has um, a similar theme with the uh, reporter who's following along with the mercenaries and realizes that the enemy doesn't care whether or not he's actually a combatant. Uh, hmm. And winds up having fight. Um, it, it, it is a war story, but you know, you, you, uh, you think of the partisans in their farmhouses, you know, in France or in the Balkans. You know, they never wanted to be in a war. The war came to them. And you know, at some point, you have to decide: Are you choosing a side or letting them choose you? It is sort of it. It's the evolution of Angie into a warrior, at least a, a member of this group of warriors that she, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that that she really comes to feel close to and um, and suffers with. Uh, one thing we might want to mention is um, that you have a uh, related story that is um, at Bain. It was up on Bain.com, and it will be available in the uh, Bain Free Short Stories. 2016 ebook, which is um, Starhome. Uh, sorry, which is Starhome, um, and that that's another angle on this period, um, and, and it, it, right. it it's really cool in that it examines the political situation of of kind of a decrepit uh, but still functioning um, space habitat in in Earth orbit, right? I mean, not in Earth orbit, but in the, our solar system. Yeah, no, it's way out in the. Um... Hyperbelt. Uh, it's been a jump point station, and then as you know, since it was a uh, in orbit, as its orbit gradually shifted, and as traffic increased, and as technology improved, it was abandoned in lieu of a closer, newer, uh, actually constructed station, and uh, abandoned. At which point, somebody claimed it, acquired it, and turned it into a small independent and uh, marginally profitable uh, small business and yeah, and uh, and uh, community <clears throat> and with uh, all the economic shuffling during the war they basically lose all of their ability to host and transship cargo which means they lose all their, their only source of income and uh, relevance and you know, they're struggling to avoid getting abandoned and then sucked back into uh, inner system Earth. 
know, basically, the spacer community doesn't want anything to do directly with uh, planets or close in habitats there. It's just a different culture. And the uh, the salvation perhaps arrives in the form of a, of a maybe a special forces uh, team or at least a, 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 a long range recon team that. Uh, well, they're they're from a university. That's what yeah. the documents say. Right. They just happen to have incredibly super powerful telescopes that could. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great story. Uh, what are you working on now? I'm working on the uh, second of the, the, so far, three time travel stories. Um, I have to do a little less research this time because I did a tremendous amount of research for the first one. And uh, then I'm somewhere in there, the third one and another Ripple Creek in the works. And then I've got several short stories. I actually have a spreadsheet for all this I need to reference to what... uh, do we have a title for the uh, for this sequel to A Long Time Until Now? Not entirely. I've got like two or three possible titles, but none of them yeah. are really. Not entirely. Hmm. No, I don't know about that. Uh, I A Long Time Until Now is one of my. I mean, I've read a heck of a lot of time travel books, and it is it's up there. Um, it's a wonderful uh, book. I'm really glad we're doing more. Of, you're doing more of those. I had a lot of fun with that child. No, as I told you, when it was running late, there was no real difficulty writing it. There was just so much that had to be covered, and so much information that had to be at least mentioned. Yeah, because it's a, it's as alien an environment as anything else to the present day. Yeah, I mean, we should mention it's it's about a, a, a sort of mixed. Uh, U.S. Armed Forces unit that gets thrown back to the Paleolithic time in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, you have two vehicles out of a convoy, and some of them were supposed to be were just convoy crew, and some of them were supposed to be debarking various places. And these two vehicles get displaced, and all they have is what they're carrying and the equipment in the two vehicles. Yeah, it's just really cool Swiss Family Robinson, except, of course, they kept getting stuff off of the ship, and these guys have no such ability. <laughs> I slightly over-equipped the trucks. Um, there are trucks that there were convoy vehicles with that amount of stuff, just not that many. So I, you know, gave them the benefit of the doubt. I just a lot of the things I like about it are the way that you, you know, unexpected twists. Uh, the way that they use Wi-Fi, for instance, was really cool. You know, people uh, adapt to the you know the tools they have. Yeah. Well, it's a great book, and we're looking forward to sequel yeah. to that. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit in there where I've got them, um, and, and uh, I think I noted when we did the interview for that specifically, um, there are errors in there that were deliberately allowed to stay there that I could have fixed if I'd done uh, another pass, but because they don't have access to Wikipedia or technical manuals, they're working from memory, so I, I, I researched, then I wrote, and I deliberately did not fix any errors that snuck in that way because they wouldn't have known. Um, and I, I actually cheated in the favor of ignorance a little because I actually have reduced iron from ore. Uh, my son and I helped uh, someone who who did a reproduction Viking era iron furnace. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course you have. <laughs> but many of us have not done that. So. Yeah. Two hundred pounds of charcoal and sixty pounds of ore will give you about fifteen pounds of iron. Yeah. It takes twelve to fifteen hours. It's very very in-depth process what do you how much do you need for a sword like a, a fist size lump or something like that that would be a, yeah you'd actually start with about 15 pounds of of raw uh bloom iron and then you have to carburize some of it and by the time you're done you'll have a two and a half pound sword and that's why in the early middle ages you were talking 20 30 head of cattle for a sword and only professional warriors had them. It wasn't something that everybody had lying around the shack. And it was tremendously involved. Yeah, that's a lot of cows. The book is Angel Eyes by Michael Z. Williamson. It is now available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Now we continue with our complete 
audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 19 Above Corsera Though Daniel remained at the command console, he had handed the con to Vesey on a flat plate display to make the short hop to Corsera from their observation point one light minute out. She would land them in Brotherhood also. Using the relatively poor equipment was good practice. Vesey had extracted the Kaisha 37 miles above Corsera, a lovely piece of work even in so short a hop. She would do equally well bringing the Kaisha into harbor. And another time, when Vesey was on her own and perhaps being shot at, she would make a similar landing a trifle more smoothly than she would have done without this practice. Kaisha to Brotherhood Control, Corey said. Come in, Brotherhood Control, over. His eyes were closed, and he was knuckling his forehead fiercely with his left hand. The length of a passage through the Matrix didn't affect the amount of discomfort an individual felt on extraction, and Corey was obviously feeling a great deal. Daniel rotated the couch of his console to check the Corsairan envoys. He had decided to bunk the three of them in the main cabin, moving crewmen, including Wochins at her own request, to the overflow bunks in the hold. Lieutenant Angelotti looked cheery. Colonel Bourbon was sitting on his bunk with the expression of a man trying to hold up a wall which was collapsing on him, and Almer lay flat with his right forearm thrown across his eyes. The gesture looked theatrical, as everything Almer did was theatrical, but it was certainly possible that the fellow was prostrated by the pain of extraction. Daniel smiled, remembering the time that had happened to him while he was still a cadet on a training cruise. Oddly enough, it made him feel closer to Tibbs's aid. An irritating fellow, to be sure, but surprisingly sharp once you learned his manner. Hogg unstrapped from the bulkhead jump seat and propelled himself to the command console. His woodcraft served him well in free fall, as it did Daniel. Hogg always knew where his body was and how much weight he was putting on any surface he was in contact with. Misplacing your weight in the field meant that a snapped twig alerted your prey, or even that you slid down a hillside on top of the loose stone you had disturbed. In freefall, you caromed wildly around the compartment, which could be even more unpleasant. I figure there's plenty of time to get into your white's master, Hogg said, instead of waiting while the ship cools off and we can open her up. Hogg, Daniel said, I told you that the Kaisha wasn't a naval vessel, and I'm not here as an RCN officer. The last thing I want to do is convince people that I represent the Republic on Corsera. I will wear these. He tugged the leg of his dark blue utilities, just as I told you in Xenos that I would. Kaisha, this is Brotherhood Control, the console announced. You are cleared to land in the same berth as you had previously. I say again, the previous berth. That's the only place you're cleared to land, over. Six? Corey asked on the command channel. At this moment, Daniel and the Kaisha had effectively unlimited options. When they began their landing approach, their options shrank sharply. On the other hand, options for completing the mission successfully were much higher if they landed in Brotherhood Harbor as directed. We didn't come from Cinnabar in order to fail and go home again. Roger, Corey, Daniel said. Lieutenant Vesey, bring us in, over. Roger, Brotherhood Control, Corey said. Kaisha out. Ship, said Vessi. Prepare for descent. And stay alert, fellow sissies, because it may be rough after we've landed. Five out. Daniel smiled as breaking thrust pushed him back into his couch. He had thought of taking the con himself, 
but he would probably have other claims on his attention shortly. Vessi had again proven herself precisely the sort of alert, intelligent officer whom he would want in charge of the ship when he himself was in the middle of something else. Probably in the middle of something lethal. Brotherhood on Corsera The Kaisha was wrapped in a blanket of plasma as it braked toward the surface of Corsera. Ionized oxygen and hydrogen atoms radiated across the electro-optical spectrum, smothering all but the most fragmentary bits of communication and data gathering. If I believed in hell, Adele thought, I would say that I am in it. The humor of the thought brought a hint of a smile as she tried to strain information from the static. No matter how hard the software attempted to sharpen the hash, it remained hash. Their lives and mission might depend on what Adele heard in the next few minutes, or what she failed to hear. The Kaisha bellied into Brotherhood Harbor in a pillow of steam which turned the last few feet of her descent into a greasy stagger. Adele didn't notice that, nor that her apparent weight returned to normal when the thrusters shut off. What she did notice was that the roar of static sank to a mere nasty crackle. Data streamed in and she was back in her element. Adele set her side of the console to convert her words into a text crawl at the bottom of Daniel's display and said, Garrison Headquarters has just directed the regiment's missile battery to destroy the Kaisha if we should lift from our berth again. Command, this is six, Daniel said orally to the ship's officers. Signals, can you lock it out? And why didn't the garrison alert their own missiles over? Lieutenant Corey has locked both batteries, Adele said, switching to voice communication. The garrison battery has landline communication to its headquarters, which I cannot intercept as yet. I would guess that Murciello alerted his own troops as soon as we contacted Brotherhood Control, whereas radioing the regiment battery was more a matter of hope than expectation. Uh, over. The regiment crew wouldn't have taken garrison orders without agreement from Mistress Tibbs, Daniel said, which they wouldn't have gotten, though she might not have known what was going on over. Spacers opened hatches in all occupied compartments, including two on the bridge. The main hatch would remain closed until the hull and the ship's immediate surroundings had cooled, but there wasn't the risk of binding and warping smaller hatches. Air puffed in, drawing with its steam and the sharp bite of ozone. Six, there's rockets aimed at us from the seawall, Sun said at the workstation on which he'd brought up a gunnery array. A whole rocket launcher under a tarp, so we didn't see it coming down. Sir, I can't bear on them by 22 degrees. Can you swing us around so I can bear just a little bit? Negative, Daniel said. Mundy, can you? No, said Adele, anticipating the rest of the question. It has manual controls and the sights are optical. I can jam radio signals to the crew, but I would expect them to launch even without orders if we open fire. And they're only 50 yards away, over. The launcher was a three-tier, three-two-three rack of eight-inch rockets. They were short-range and unguided, the sort of weapon that might be used to bombard a city or to serve a freighter as defensive armament against pirates. The bursting charges might not penetrate the Kaisha's hull, but they would stun and possibly kill everyone aboard. I got it, Hogg said, standing at the hatch between the bridge and hold. He wasn't netted in, but shut down as now in harbor. The background noise was the relatively slight chorus of squeaks, clinks, and hisses of the freighter cooling. Hogg reached into the arms locker beside the hatch and came out with a stocked impeller. I'll open the airlock and wait on the spine till it's time, right? Yes, said Daniel, rising from the console. He tugged at his utilities, pulling down the trousers, which must have ridden up. And master, Hogg said. Nobody else goes outside with a gun, got it? I don't want somebody starting the party before I'm ready. Yes, Daniel said again. Master Hogg, said Hale, standing in the hold with a carbine. You get the mechanism, she nodded to the stocked impeller. Adele had seen similar weapons smash through brick walls. And I'll take care of the personnel, on your call. Hale hefted her carbine. She was probably able to handle a full-sized weapon like Hogg's, but she obviously preferred the virtues of accuracy and rapid recovery from recoil. Yeah, all right, Hogg said, on my call. Adele nodded approvingly. She touched her own pistol, a light weapon that would have been no more than a dangerous toy in most hands. 
The inner airlock door on the bridge was already open. Hogg disappeared into it. A moment later, Hale followed him up the ladder. Brotherhood control to Kaisha, the radio boomed. Kaisha, keep your personnel on board until the envoys have been carried to the manor. A vehicle is on its way. I repeat, nobody else sets foot outside the vessel. Control out. Corey looked at Daniel again. Adele got up from the console. Agree, she said to Daniel. There's no choice. Then, Lieutenant Angelotti, give me your tunic and cap. As Adele spoke, she opened the press seal closure of her own beige tunic. Her trousers were beige also, instead of the bleached white, rather grubby now, of Angelotti's uniform trousers. Angelotti's bright red tunic was enough. Acknowledge them, Corey, said Daniel, standing up also. His face suddenly became stricken. They'll recognize Bourbon, and they'd recognize me. Bourbon, who seemed to have understood the situation as quickly as Adele and Daniel had, stood up. He no longer looked as though he were at death's door, though in fact now he is facing probable death. Adele's tiny grin would have puzzled anyone, anyone but Tovera, who knew the thought behind it. I've been shot at before, Bourbon said. Can somebody find a gun for me? No, said Adele. You didn't carry a gun when you left for Karst, so you shouldn't have one now. Adele took the pistol from her pocket, then tossed her tunic onto the bunk. Angelotti held out the red garment. Adele put it on and transferred the pistol. Since she had kept her own trousers, she still had the personal data unit. The lieutenant was slightly plumper than Adele and had larger breasts, but the exchange in this direction would go unremarked. It would probably go unremarked aboard the Kaisha also, at least until the present business was over. Wait, what is happening? Ulmer said. He was standing and had lost his appearance of fashionable delicacy. I'm not a soldier. Problems inside the garrison are nothing to me. Be quiet, Adele said. We need all three hostages or they'll wonder. Four, said Tovera. Lieutenant Angelotti's secretary is coming. Adele looked at her. Tovara hadn't asked a question, but Adele was in charge of the operation and would make the important decisions. Yes, she should go, Daniel said. He met Adele's eyes. Nobody looks twice at her. Yes, all right, Adele said. She put on the build cap prescribed for dress casual uniforms in the Pantelarian and now Corsiran Navy. The original badge, a silver, double-headed wolf had been replaced by crossed pickaxes, rather crudely embroidered. She, Daniel, and Tovera had just carried out a complex negotiation in fewer words than many people require to decide what to have for lunch. Dealing with people wasn't difficult, so long as all parties were smart and decisive. Look, you have three now with her, Alma said, reaching toward Tovera. Possibly he intended to grab her sleeve. Cazalet, who had entered the bridge from the hold, stepped between them and shoved Almer back. Give me your hat and tunic, Almer, he said. Adele, I'm taller, but I'll pass. Yes, that's right, Adele said. She wasn't angry about Almer's behavior. That was a problem for Mistress Tibbs to deal with. But someone on or beyond the verge of panic was dangerous to have with you in a situation like the one shaping up. Daniel had set the main display to a real-time view of the land side of the harbor. An armored personnel carrier lifted from the plaza and skimmed down Central Street toward the water. It was the less spavined one of the pair which had flown the garrison delegation to Pearl Valley. Despite being in better condition than its consort, the APC stayed low enough to be in ground effect most of the way. Pedestrians jumped or, less wisely, flattened themselves on the pavement. Adele didn't see anyone actually crushed, but that obviously hadn't been a matter of concern to the garrison driver. Sir, we can open the main hatch whenever you're ready, Fessy said. She had seated herself at the back of the console, the place Adele had given up. Daniel's couch was empty. Right, said Daniel. Give me a moment to sort things with the crew. We don't want anybody shooting from here. They'd probably miss us, said Tovera. Adele smiled. Daniel laughed and clapped Tovera lightly on the shoulder as he strode past. It was the first time Adele remembered Daniel treating her servant as anything but a dangerous pet. 
All right, listen, Daniel said, as the keyed-up spacers backed to make room for him. Adele and Tovera followed, with Cazalet and Bourbon behind them. Any of you have guns? Put them down right now. When the time comes, we'll go out and sort things with the wogs. We don't need bloody guns to do that, do we? No, hell no, we sure bloody don't. So we're all going to move back in the hold, out of sight, Daniel said. I'll tell you when we go for him. And can anybody find me a nice length of pipe? Want an open-end wrench, sir? Beasley said. Or hell, you could have the box wrench I was going to use myself. Kaisha, send out the envoys, said the console, clearly audible in the hold. Send out the envoys immediately, brotherhood over. Open up, Corey, Daniel said. He shouted toward the bridge instead of using his commo helmet so that he informed the spacers also. They were already moving aft toward where the extra bunks had been fitted. The hold had been nearly empty even before the Kaisha unloaded its cargo of weapons. Adele and Cazalet placed themselves in front of the hatchway to either side of Colonel Bourbon. Tovera was to Adele's left and a subservient pace behind. The greeting committee from the garrison might wonder at Tovera's presence. But as Daniel had said, they wouldn't worry. In all likelihood, no one would be looking at anything but Bourbon. The releases clanged and the hatch began to descend. More steam and ozone curled in. Bourbon began to sneeze violently. Adele's nose wrinkled reflexively, but every landing was the same, and she had experienced unguessably many landings by now. Unguessably, but I could sort the logs of my voyages for landings, reduce the number by airless worlds and those with unbreathable atmospheres, and add those from before I joined the RCN and began formally logging them. The hatch thunked into its cradle on the starboard outrigger. The port crew had already extended the wooden coupler from the key to the float's outer edge. We'll go now, said Adele. She settled the cap firmly and stepped onto the ramp. Her companions moved with her. Captain Hockner and five other soldiers dismounted from the vehicle. Hockner now carried a submachine gun as well as the pistol in his cross-straw holster. The other men had Pantellarian-issue carbines. A soldier stood behind the automatic impeller on a ring mount on the roof of the cab. The weapon was still locked in its traveling position, forward and horizontal. Either Hockner hadn't wanted to be too obviously threatening at this point, or the garrison troops were so badly trained that it hadn't occurred to the gunner that he might actually need his weapon. I'll lead, Cazalet said as they approached the wooden extension. Colonel, you wait till last. With us in the way, they won't be sure of hitting you. I don't like, Bourbon said. He paused and muttered. Sorry. That saved Adele the effort of telling him to be quiet. She wouldn't have minded the effort. Well considered, Cazalet, she said as she followed him closely across the walkway. They stepped onto the quay. The APC waited thirty feet away with its fans shut down. Adele put her left hand in her pocket as she moved up parallel to Cazalet. Bourbon took his place between them. Tovera was to the left as before. Cazalet looked nothing like Almer, but the hat brim waggled in front of his face and the flowing tunic looked as well on the slender, taller lieutenant as on the chubby aide. Hockner and his nervous gang had eyes only for Bourbon, though. They were within ten feet now, poised to... The loud squeal from the harbor was the Kaisha's bow gun traversing. Adele knew that the plasma cannon couldn't bear on the vehicle, but Hockner's gang didn't. What's that, a soldier cried. He brought his carbine to his shoulder, pointing toward the Kaisha. He wasn't looking through the sights. How would we know, Adele said shrilly. When the soldier glanced toward her, she shot him twice in the face. Convulsing from the brain shot, he slammed back into the side of the APC, then bounced forward again. Cazalet grabbed the carbine, but the hands of the corpse had locked on it. Adele was aware only subconsciously of the rattle of Tovera's little submachine gun. Hockner's arms flailed as he pitched backward. The man next to him was going down also. Adele looked up at the gunner just as his helmet spun high in the air. Ticked by a bullet, she thought. Then she saw the splash of blood and realized that Hale had shot the man through the bridge of the nose. The carbine bullet had hit the inside of the helmet after pureeing his brains. Colonel Bourbon was wrestling with one of the soldiers. Adele couldn't safely shoot, but Cazalet had finally pulled the carbine away from the corpse. He put the muzzle into the soldier's ear and must have realized that he wasn't mentally able to pull the trigger. 
he punched the weapon stunningly into the soldier's head, knocking him against the APC. A garrison soldier tried to escape through the hatch in the side of the vehicle. Adele shot him through the back of the neck. The second round of her double tap disintegrated on the fellow's helmet. Her light pellets were glass propelled by an aluminum skirt, which vaporized in the flux of the driving coil. But one was enough. Another of Hockner's gang must have already gotten back into the APC. Bourbon had the carbine he'd been struggling for. He fired one round through the hatchway. I give up, the man inside shrieked. I give- Bourbon threw the carbine selector to full auto. He fired a ten-round burst into the compartment. A slug ricocheted into the cab windshield, starring the bulletproof panel mounted inside the glass. The bombardment rockets nearby on the quay blew up. The orange fireball was speckled with bits of the launcher and sheets of rocket casing. Hogg must have kept shooting into the rockets until the fuel of one had ignited and set off the other seven in a very fierce blaze. Technically, it had been a deflagration rather than an explosion, but the pressure wave knocked Adele down. The shock had thrown Colonel Bourbon against the APC. He straightened and aimed the carbine at the hatchway again. Adele lifted the weapon's muzzle. Come out with your hands up, she shouted through the hatch. The burst's high-intensity snaps beside her had made her voice sound thin and flat in her own ears. They could use another prisoner, and there didn't seem much risk that the fellow whimpering and blubbering in the vehicle was going to come out shooting. If he attempted that, Tovera would kill him before he finished squeezing the trigger. Another roar slapped the harbor. This was more distant than that of the rocket launcher destroying itself, but it was sharper as well. Adele glanced to her left. The garrison's three anti-ship missiles rippled in quick succession from their concrete emplacement. They were aimed back toward Brotherhood. The first missile was already hypersonic when it struck the edge of the plaza and exploded in a bubble of orange from expended fuel and black, the powdered basalt. The missiles depended on kinetic energy rather than warheads, but at such short range, a layman would not have been able to tell the difference. The second and third missiles punched through the flame. One struck the ground floor of the Gulkander Palace, the other scattered the upper portions of the building, which were already billowing outward as the sidewall collapsed. Daniel Wochins and most of the Kaisha's crew sprinted up to the vehicle, wheezing and puffing. Spacers didn't spend a great deal of time running, and the would-be rescue party had winded themselves with a short gallop. Adele didn't doubt that they could have fought if there had been anyone left to fight. Adele released Bourbon's carbine and shook her right hand. She would have blisters from vents in the barrel shroud. The Metacomp would take care of it, and anyway, it wasn't her usual shooting hand. The garrison soldiers, two of them, Adele had forgotten the driver, crawled out of the compartment on hands and knees. The driver was gray-faced and his right trouser leg was bloody. Apparently a ricochet had touched him. The other soldier was untouched, despite the number of slugs bouncing around the vehicle's interior, but he couldn't have been more abjectly helpless if he'd been shot in the head. As so many of his fellows had been, Colonel Bourbon cradled the carbine in his left elbow. Thank you, Lady Mundy, he said though she wasn't sure precisely what he was referring to. And thank you also, Cazalet. I try to stay fit, but between the voyages and captivity, I wasn't as ready for a tussle as I should have been. Adele, Daniel said, can you set up a general broadcast to Brotherhood, to all receivers, I mean? Yes, easily enough, she said. We can do it from here if... She started to enter the vehicle, then paused to tug at the man she had killed in the hatchway. Barnes grabbed a handful of the soldier's tunic and tossed him over the seawall. The APC's communicator was in the console between the seats and the cab. Personnel in the rear compartment could use it also. The late gunner's boots dangled over it, but they weren't in the way. Adele switched the unit to Keisha's external frequency and said, Corey, this is Monday. Six wants to broadcast to everyone in Brotherhood. Patch us into the town's emergency alert system. I set up the link when we first arrived. She realized she was still holding her pistol. She set it on the console and flexed the fingers of her left hand. Done, said Corey. Ma'am, I apologize for the delay in getting the missiles away. They had a directional lockout that I didn't notice until they didn't launch the first time. As Adele opened her mouth to speak, Corey added, Ma'am, I angled them so that the basement level was clear. So long as the ceiling held in the collapse, the library ought to be fine. 
When they dig the rubble off the floor above, I mean. Understood, Corey, Adele said, and she did understand. It was war. Worse things had happened in wars than the destruction of an ancient library, but that hadn't happened this time. Corey was a civilized man, and he had been well-trained. Hold for six. Daniel and Bourbon had entered the compartment behind her. Colonel, Daniel said, I want you to take the handset. Adele offered it. And tell everybody that Pantellerian saboteurs have killed Major Murciello and attempted to destroy the harbor defenses, but that you've taken charge and defeated the threat. You can end with long live Corsera or whatever seems appropriate. Bourbon squatted before the console. Adele backed away and said to Daniel, We don't know that Murciello was killed in the building collapse. We know that he'll be found dead, said Tovera from the hatchway. She smiled in her way. Trust me. And when Bourbon has finished his broadcast, Daniel said, seemingly oblivious of Tovera's words, he and I will have a discussion about ending this war. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an interdimensional longsword that strikes not to the death, but to the pain, plus a rolling barrage of fireworks of thanks and praise to ease his next sally over the terrain of the imagination towards storytelling excellence for Michael Z. Williamson the author of Angel Eyes. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 